Welcome, everybody, to episode 22 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Say hello, Dan. Greetings and salutations. Today, we have a very special guest and one that I'm personally super excited to introduce. He has taught he has taught at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the UW University of Washington since 1975. In 1980, he was appointed the Herbert J. Ellison Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies. He is a prolific author of Authoritarian Regimes, Tyranny, and Genocide, some of my favorite subjects to read about. He is currently one of my favorite authors, an all-around amazing person. And if you haven't, I highly recommend you check out his new book, You Say You Want a Revolution, because it's amazing. I give you Professor Daniel Chereau. Go ahead and say hi, Professor. Hi, how are you? I am well. <laughs> it's good to have you today. All right. So I'll start by saying yeah. that uh, I know that you were primarily interested in an old book of mine called Modern Tyrants. That's true, yes. Uh, but uh, I'm going to talk about my newest book, which was published in March of this year. Oh, I'm sorry. We're in 2021. In March <laughs> of 2020. And it's a, it's a related subject. It's related also to what I've written about genocides. And that is what the outcome has been of so many revolutions and why so many have turned out quite tragically. But first, I'm going to start by talking about the causes of revolutions. Because actually, when you look at some of the worst, most frightful regimes that have ever been, they start out because there's some source of major instability in their country that opens the gate for extremists to take power. It doesn't just happen by chance. So wh why are there revolutions? And you know, by revolutions, I mean some major political change. I don't mean the way revolution is used in a lot of loose ways. For example, the Industrial Revolution, you know, things changed a lot, but it wasn't in the sense that I'm using it, a revolution, because it, it took place over a couple of centuries. And so there was gradual change and, and the change was drastic, but it wasn't like the French Revolution or the American Revolution or the Russian Revolution or uh, any of the more recent ones that I talk about in my book where there's a very sudden political change and very often change in the economy and the society as well. Well, why did these things happen? And also in what way might that be relevant for the situation in the United States today? Uh, we're not on the verge of a revolution, but we're closer than I would have expected when I started writing this book. And certainly a lot closer than when I was writing the book called Modern Tyrants. So basically, revolutions occur when there's regime incompetence. That is to say, problems pile up in a society. It can be a combination of things, political problems, uh, economic problems, social problems. Uh, and what happens when things get blocked is that conservative elites block change. They simply prevent reforms from taking place because they have a strong position, a good position, they're well off, they're powerful. They don't want change. And as problems pile up and political systems don't adapt and economic systems don't adapt. 
that creates greater and greater discontent and eventually it breaks, some crisis comes up. Uh, I'll give you examples from some of the most famous revolutions ever. Uh, the French Revolution of 1789 uh, occurred because fiscal problems had been piling up in France for almost a century. And time and time again, attempted reforms that would properly tax the rich, which in this case was the aristocracy and high church lords. Uh, were blocked by those conservative elites. And the monarchy uh, didn't push hard enough, wasn't able to make those change, and France finally went bankrupt. And in order to overcome this, the uh, king and his advisors called an assembly together. And there was so much discontent that that actually is what got the revolution going. Um, Russia in 1917, well, there had been attempts to liberalize what was a very autocratic monarchy for decades, and there had been revolutionary movements and they hadn't succeeded. But the Tsarist regime in Russia so badly mishandled World War I, there were so many deaths, there was starvation, there was chaos, that finally the Tsar, the monarchy, lost all support. The army wouldn't support him anymore, even the the rich wouldn't support him anymore, but the failure to address problems that have been piling up for decades uh, is what made the handling of World War I so poor and resulted in a revolution. Um, the United States, the revolution uh, that began really in 1775, you know, really didn't have to take place. All Parliament had to do in England was to give some voting rights to colonial elites. That's really all they wanted. Uh, and in the 1760s and 1770s, early 1770s, they just refused. And they pushed fairly conservative elites. I mean, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they, these were not the poor, uh, these were not the mobs of impoverished, starving people. This was the elite. And even a figure who became a hero quite appropriately so, like Benjamin Franklin, for a long time thought, no, no, we're English. Uh, they just have to give us some voting rights in parliament. And the British parliament refused and finally the dam broke. And you see this time and time again, a more recent revolution, 1979 in Iran, the Shah of Iran had been blocking political reform, had maintained an autocracy, and eventually so many people turned against him uh, that, again, it's as if the dam burst and uh, there was a revolution and he was thrown out. And as we know, we're still living with the consequences. We're living with the consequences of all of these. So, and there, there are many other cases. Uh, um, I didn't put this in my book, but the case of Ethiopia is interesting. Haile Selassie, the, the emperor of Ethiopia, had been in his youth uh, a reformer, but he was old reform stopped and more and more young people were upset. The army was upset. They overthrew him and murdered him. Now, what happens invariably in all of these and many more that I haven't mentioned, I should mention also, by the way, before I move on to the next part of this, 
that this is what happened in European colonies. And uh, two of the very worst cases were uh, the French in Vietnam, or what was then called Indochina, and in Algeria. After World War II, this was in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, um, uh, in the case of uh, Vietnam, uh, the French lost in 1954. In Algeria, they lost in 1962. Now, in both those cases, for decades, uh, educated Algerians or educated Vietnamese were asking the French, make reforms. You can't just rule us the way you did in the past. Uh, let us have more autonomy. Give us more authority. Uh, let us gradually move toward independence and we'll remain loyal to France. We'll, we'll trade with France. You'll have certain privileges here, but don't just rule us as if you, as a white minority, French minority, have the right to just tell us what to do. And the French refused. And finally, there were revolutions and they fought against them. They fought vicious wars and the more vicious it became, the more the communists in Vietnam and extremists in Algeria were able to take hold of the revolution because, and this blends into the next topic, what happens when you have regimes that block moderate reform? The moderates get sidelined, they get pushed aside, they get jailed. And when the revolution finally comes, very often societies turn to them and they start off in charge, but they have already lost a good bit of credibility. They don't realize how angry so much of the population is. And they often tend to be naive. So this happened in France. In France, after the revolution started, moderates took control, but they didn't realize how angry so many people were that there had been starvation, uh, particularly in, in the countryside and also in the big cities, most notably in Paris. The same thing happened in Russia. The first revolutionaries who took power were relatively moderate people who had been in the forefront of trying to push reform, but had been pushed aside. And so uh, because they were uh, not very effective because they didn't realize how angry so many people were. Uh, this opened the way for more radical forces that had been scheming all along and were better organized than better able to fight because they'd been used to getting oppressed. Uh, this was very much the case in, in Russia. Lenin had been an extreme revolutionary for a long time and wasn't getting anywhere. But when moderates took charge of the revolution, uh, in early 1917, they were ineffective. They didn't do as much. And he had a tight, uh, small, but well-disciplined organization that was able to take power. You see the same thing in Iran. Um, at first, for a short while, relatively moderate forces that had uh, been uh, always for some reform took charge, but it wasn't enough and they were outmaneuvered by radical Islamists. In that sense, the American Revolution was very unusual because uh, the moderate elites, the George Washingtons, the James Madisons, the Benjamin Franklins, the Adams, the John Adams and so on, uh, actually were able to keep control. Uh, they understood that there was a danger from radical extremists. 
but the American Revolution was a political revolution, but it didn't upend the social order, whereas the French Revolution tried to, the Russian Revolution certainly did, uh, the Iranian Revolution did, the Ethiopian Revolution did, the anti-colonial revolutions uh, in Vietnam or in Algeria upended the entire social order. So, as I said, first the moderates in control, and usually they lose control. Uh, and in that sense, the American Revolution was quite unusual. So I'll get back to that because uh, by being moderate, the American Revolution never tackled the major problem that has always faced the United States. And that was the problem of slavery. Uh, and if you think of it that way, you can think of uh, the American Civil War as stage two of the revolution um, and that had an extremely high death rate. And that didn't solve the problem either and we're still living with it. So maybe in some sense, even though the American Revolution is held up as an example of how the moderates kept control, uh, maybe that was not radical enough. Uh, and by the way, the American leaders of the revolution knew perfectly well, even though most of them of the leading elites were slaveholders, they knew perfectly well it was wrong. They just couldn't bear to do away with it because they had such a financial interest in it. Thomas Jefferson was a good example. Thomas Jefferson um, had many good qualities. He wrote very well the Declaration of Independence, which was largely his writing, is a beautiful document, but he was also a spendthrift. He could never free his slaves because he actually was so far in debt that he didn't really own anything. Everything went to his creditors. Anyway, so, um, uh, so typically moderates lose control uh, and uh, more radical forces take power. Now, what do I mean by radicals? Well, radicals are people who want to completely remake society. And in that sense, the American revolutionaries were different. They, they wanted a political change. They didn't want to remake society. And because they were able to keep control, society didn't change very much, really. The political system changed a lot. Uh, but the social system, the economic system didn't. The people who were the rich, the most powerful before the revolution remained such, unless they sided with the British, in which case they had to leave. Uh, but most of them uh, and most of the leaders we consider our founding fathers were part of the elite to begin with and remain so. Not so in the other famous revolutions. In the French revolutions, the moderates, by the way, one of the leading moderates in the French revolution was someone who we honor greatly in the United States and that is Lafayette. Uh, who had come as a young man, uh, very young. He was still a teenager. Well, he was 19 when he came. Um, went over George Washington, learned English, uh, uh, became a leader. And then in France, he became one of the early leaders of the revolution. And But he was a moderate. He wanted to have a constitutional monarchy, gradual change. And he was despised by the right by the conservatives, by the nobility and by the king because they considered him a traitor. And he came to be despised by the radical left because they thought he was just a rich aristocrat who didn't really want a revolution. And in the end, he had to flee. Um, and, uh, so I mentioned him because you all know his name, but there were others like him who were not as well known in the United States. I find it, by the way, uh, more than a little ironic that some of the 
really quite ugly events we've had in this country, uh, including very recently include what happened when the president marched out uh, with a military escort to disperse a Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration. And where was it? On Lafayette Square. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm, I, I've kind of got that uh, President Trump really knew much of the history, but you know, I mean, it's not a mystery. Lafayette is a hero in this country, yeah, and, and rightfully so. And he's become a hero again in France, but the, at the height of the revolution, he had to flee; otherwise, he would have been executed, like many other moderates. So. When radicals manage to push out the moderates because uh, those who are really angry have been dispossessed in earlier cases when there was a famine, they want more than just gradual reform. And, and so they give uh, power to the radicals. There's another phenomenon which we do see in the United States and which we see uh, very clearly in what most people who study revolutions don't consider a revolution, but they should. And that is the Nazi takeover of power in Germany. Just because it was right wing doesn't mean it wasn't a revolution. The Nazis wanted to completely transform German society. And if Hitler hadn't lost the war, he would have. He was well on his way to doing that. Uh, he took power legally, but uh, almost immediately turned it into a revolutionary regime. Um, and uh, how did he get to power? Well, in a way, in, in a similar fashion, uh, Weimar Germany in the late 20s wasn't doing so badly, but it never was considered a fully legitimate regime. And then when the depression hit, there was a crisis and in political instability. Um, uh, conservatives didn't want to reform sufficiently um, radical left forces grew, though they never really threatened to take over. But what happened was that the moderate left, the socialists, and the moderate or fairly conservative right never came to an agreement. The moderate and fairly conservative right that was part of the elite trusted the extreme right more than they trusted the moderate left. Mm -hmm. And that's a phenomenon that we've seen in this country. So modern, Republic about that. Yeah, modern Republicans are more likely to say, well, I, I, you know, I'm not a Tea Party person. I'm not a, such a great fan of uh, Trumpism. But look, I trust them more than I trust moderate Democrats because all the Democrats are just socialists and they're going to destroy this country. <laughs> and moderate Democrats say, uh, you know, I don't want a revolution. I don't want to change everything. But look, you know, the far left is more trustworthy than the moderate right. And that's what happened in Germany. And, and the conservative elites turned to Hitler. Most of them despised Hitler personally. Uh, the president of Germany, the World War I military hero, von Hindenburg, uh, openly despised Hitler. He called him that Austrian corporal. Uh, and yet he he turned to him rather than make an agreement with the Social Democrats who didn't want to bring about a revolution, but just some gradual reform. And then they thought, oh, well, we can actually control this guy. You know, he, he's just a loud mouth. He speaks well. He has some popular support. 
but look, she's, she's kind of crazy. So we're not really in any danger. And what they found out was that they were in danger. And once he was in power, he never let go. Uh, in our case, um, something like that happened, uh, except that Hitler had built up a party and had a whole set of cadres and officials to just take over. And he was actually a much better planner and organizer than what we had. But you see some of the same phenomenon here. Now, what happens when the radicals take power, whether on the far right or on the far left? Well, radicals are utopians. They actually believe, Lenin believed, Hitler believed uh, in, in utopias. The uh, cleric in Iran who took power after the Shah was overthrown, Khomeini, uh, was a utopian. He believed in a kind of a religious utopia where society would be run by top ayatollahs who were learned Islamic jurists and theologians and that that would create the ideal society. Hitler's ideal society was racially pure and had a much stronger Germany. Lenin's uh, utopia, which Stalin and other communists also believed in, was a classless society where there would be this wonderful ideal socialism. Well, utopias don't work. None of them work. Um, and what radical parties start to face when they try to impose a utopia is that the population wants reform, the population wants a lot of changes, but the population doesn't generally buy into a utopian model that requires a lot of self-sacrifice. And those utopian models, whether complete socialism in the case of the, the communists or uh, a theologically completely pure society in the case of Iran, that's not really what people want. Iranians wanted to get rid of the Shah. They wanted more democracy. They wanted more freedom. They didn't want to have all of the women wear veils. They didn't want to abolish uh, entertainment. Uh, uh, they, they didn't want to go as far. Uh, and so what the radicals face once they get power, and this happened in France as well, uh, the most radical Jacobins wanted to completely transform French society. They wanted to abolish the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, most Frenchmen were still believing Catholics. They also wanted to reform the church because the church had been run by nobles and the high church was quite split from the ordinary church. But when the revolution tried to abolish the church and, and eliminate all priests, a lot of France just revolted against that. Uh, people didn't want these extreme measures. So what do the radicals find? They find, well, we believe in our utopia. We believe in what we're doing, but somehow most people don't seem to understand. So we'll force them and eventually they'll get the point. And once you start forcing people, you have to have a secret police. You have to have, you have to jail people who don't follow your ideas, who don't obey. Uh, you may, if you get a counter-revolution, which happened in France, which happened in Russia, uh, and happened in some other places as well, you have to use force to keep yourself in power. And once you do that, you have to start killing people. That's what happened in France. That was what was called the reign of terror. Mm -hmm. What happened in France, however, was that after a couple of years, the leaders of the reign of terror 
uh, were themselves executed because moderates started to realize, and even radicals, even some pretty radical allies of the revolution start to realize that they were gonna get their heads chopped off too. Lenin and his communists, his Bolsheviks knew about that. They knew what happened to the extremists in the French revolution, that eventually the reign of terror failed. And so the first thing they did was to build up a secret police, the Cheka, to make sure it didn't happen to them. And that was really the origin of a brutally oppressive regime. Um, in Iran, the same thing happened. In Ethiopia, the same thing happened. <laughs> uh, in Vietnam, the Communist Party did that. In China, uh, where the revolution was a very long run affair because it starts in 1910, 1911, and only ends in 1949, the Communist Party under Mao did the same thing. They were prepared to kill on a large scale in order to stay in power. Uh, and that's why utopian revolutionaries if they manage to stay in power, do so by creating the secret police and oppression and in order to stay in power and in order to carry out their dreams. It doesn't mean they're dishonest uh, because they still believe in their dream. Mao died believing that he was really gonna create socialism. So did Stalin. Well, millions of people, tens of millions of people died, but that was a price they considered worth paying. Uh, so in a sense, once you get radical utopians in power, uh, if they're going to stay in power, they're going to commit terrible deeds. And they'll do it not just to feather their own nest, but in order to carry out their dreams. And that is a reason for great disappointment in what happens in revolutions, because when... Uh, followers of radical ideas push for revolutions, they're hoping for something good. You know, communism, uh, I mean, if you're a little too young, you don't remember that for a long time, communists had supporters among uh, people who were not in communist countries, who were not forced to be communist. And a lot of them, were well-educated intellectuals. Uh, I mean, I had colleagues uh, and friends, particularly in Europe, who were communists in France and England. And you know, I would ask them, but don't you know what's happening in the Soviet Union? Don't you know what's happening in China? Millions of people killed. And their answer was, yes, but there's such a wonderful dream and they'll be able to carry it out. And it's worth it. Uh, so you have to tell <laughs> me, it's worth it. Well. I, I say if you're young, because you, you, you wouldn't remember, as I do, uh, how many really very bright academics, and I say more in Europe, some here, more in Europe, uh, in, in Western democratic countries sort of fell for it. And it took a long time for them to finally realize that some of them still haven't given up on the idea. So um, uh, that, that's an important thing to remember that you can't just dismiss radicals and say, well, they're, they're crazy, they're evil, uh, they're hypocrites. No, no, they're even more dangerous if they really believe in what they're doing. Unfortunately, as I said, um, utopian ideas and certainly socialism, uh, a completely racially pure Germany 
that was going to run all of Europe and become the most powerful country in the world. Uh, none of that really worked because there was too much resistance, some of it internally, some in the case of Germany internationally. Um, you know, as Hitler had stuck to building autobahns in Germany and killing only Germans uh, and not trying to conquer Europe, um, he would have stayed in power. Uh, but that was not part of the goal that he had. He wasn't just going to make Germany somewhat better. He wanted to change everything. Um, so um, uh, when those uh, radical forces take power and try to implement their plans, there's resistance that builds up and then more repression. Why then do some such regimes persist for a long time? Well, in part because they have built up a successful repressive apparatus, in part because they have perhaps never a majority, but a substantial number of true believers in their countries. Uh, sometimes um, uh, they have foreign supporters as well. Uh, one of the things that really helps revolutionary regimes is if they are attacked from outside. And that really is something that when the United States has made foreign policy um, uh, throughout the Cold War um, and even today forgets is that if you can point to foreign enemies and say, look, you may not like what I'm doing. You may not like in Iran, the extreme theological radicalism of the Ayatollahs. You may not like Lenin and his communists. Uh, you may not like uh, the extremists in the French Revolution, but look at who's threatening us. In the case of the French Revolution, uh, conservative powers in Europe, primarily the Austrians who had uh, a, a powerful empire that actually at that time bordered on France because Austria owned what is today Belgium. Uh, you had the Austrians and the Prussians at first who invaded France in order to bring down the revolutionary regime. And the revolutionary said, you may not like us, but look, France is being threatened. Foreigners want to come in and rule you. That's really what saved uh, Lenin. Uh, almost from the beginning, uh, there was a great deal of resistance, uh, but foreign powers intervened, uh, not very successfully, but they built that up and uh, said to uh, army officers who had been against the revolution, they said, yes, you're against this, but look, look at what's happening to Russia. Foreigners want to take over. Don't you want to defend Russia? And a great many did. And the same thing happened in Iran. Eventually, the same thing happened in Germany. Though in the case of Germany, Hitler was not immediately threatened, but he created a sense of threat that people believed. The United States during the Cold War and since, and today is doing exactly the same thing with Iran, is constantly threatening intervention. And what that does is it solidifies nationalist feeling that 
then gets people to join in on the side of the revolutionaries on the side of the radicals, even if they don't particularly like them. That certainly is the story of Vietnam. Uh, a lot of the people who fought for and joined the communists in Vietnam were first fighting against the French who had been the colonial masters and then against the Americans who they considered a colonial power trying to intervene. In the end, you know, the story of Vietnam, which uh, again, uh, if you're uh, not old enough, you don't remember the details, but you certainly know about it. Uh, the story of Vietnam is incredible. The world's strongest military power you, with complete control of the air, with more artillery, with uh, ships offshore, with a half a million soldiers, could not defeat an army that uh, was always on the edge of starvation in a poor country. Uh, the French in Algeria also had for a while close to a half a million men. They had complete control of the air, they had stronger weapons and they couldn't defeat them. And the reason they weren't able to defeat them was because the more successful they were, the more successful we were in Vietnam militarily, the less people liked us because they said, these are foreigners trying to take over. Now, of course, that's not what the Americans thought they were doing, but that is the way it was perceived. So whether in the French Revolution in 1789 or in many subsequent revolutions, and certainly in the case of Russia, in China, the Communist Party would never have taken power if the Japanese hadn't invaded China in 1937. Um, that's not part of their official history. I mean, the official history is, well, it was inevitable because that's what China needed, but. That wasn't so, they, they never would have taken power, but they managed to present themselves as a coherent anti-Japanese force that was less corrupt and more nationalist in a way than uh, Chiang Kai-shek's army and his side called themselves nationalists, but they, they lost the faith of too many people. So over and over you see this, foreign threats can help even the worst regimes. You know, in the end, even people who didn't like Hitler were willing to fight to, for what they considered to be saving Germany. And of course, you see this now, you see that uh, the more autocratic uh, forces, political forces are constantly talking about a foreign threat. And if there isn't one, they can make it up. So uh, there's quite a lot of writing these days about Hungary. Uh, Hungary is a small and not terribly significant country, but there's a lot of writing about it because it's got a very autocratic regime. And that autocratic regime uh, has solidified its position like a similar regime in Poland by saying, we're threatened by immigrants. Actually, there are very few immigrants in either of those countries, but they've managed to panic their populations and that's part of the repertoire of autocrats, uh, not just revolutionary radicals, but autocrats everywhere. Uh, if you can play this nationalist card, um, then, um, then you'll get more support. Um, a French historian once said that 
nationalism was the last resort was the last resort of scoundrels. But that doesn't mean that it's always bad, <laughs> but it does mean that it's a useful card to play. Uh, another case that we have that's really quite astonishing is uh, of a revolutionary regime that has been effective in keeping control because it's done what others have created a police force, jail people, exile people, but it's been a mess economically and that's Cuba. So Castro took power in 1959. So it's been more than 60 years. The country is still an economic mess um, and it's never gonna get better unless they abandon socialism and the kind of autocracy they have. So how do they stay in power? Well, they have repressive forces, yes, but they also stay in power because ultimately a lot of Cubans are nationalists. Part of the reason for the revolution there was a perception among ordinary Cubans that the United States was abusing them. And it was, it wasn't a direct colony, uh, but the United States really was able to dictate what it wanted. And in some ways, it deeply offended an awful lot of Cubans uh, because Havana and its casinos were treated in their eyes like um, an American bordello. Uh, and uh, Castro was able to capitalize on that. And every time the United States tries to impose stricter anti-Cuban measures, the way this recent administration has, it only solidifies the rule of the autocratic radicals who say, well, you may not like us, but at least we're Cuban. If you turn against this, you'll just get Americans to come back and turn all of our women into prostitutes and abuse us. And, and you know, there's a reason why a lot of Cubans uh, agree with that. Uh, so it's something to think about and watch out for uh, when you talk about our own uh, country. Uh, pointing to enemies abroad and pointing to internal enemies solidifies the rule of autocrats. Uh, and that's very much the case with revolutionary regimes. For Hitler, it was Jews. Uh, you may have heard of people talking about the Reichstag fire. Uh, Timothy Snyder, who's written a lot, and he has an essay in this last Sunday's New York Times Magazine, He's written a lot about these regimes when uh, uh, Trump was elected, said there's going to be a Reichstag fire. Well, there never has been. There have been substitutes. The Reichstag fire was something that the Nazis did very shortly after taking power. They burned down the parliament building, but they didn't say they burned down the parliament building. They found some communist who actually was from the Netherlands and said he did it. And all the research, recent research shows that uh, they put him in the building, uh, but he never could have caused the kind of fire that occurred. And it's known that the Nazis did it, then blamed it on the communists. And that was the excuse for giving Hitler the powers that he used to purge all of his enemies. Hmm. Having internal enemies is very important. The communists in China, uh, Mao, uh, Stalin, uh, the radical Islamists in Iran, uh, 
Castro and his regime, they all found internal enemies. Some of them were real enemies. A lot of them weren't. But whipping up the population and saying, we have foreign enemies and we have domestic enemies and they're going to destroy us and we have to destroy them is a way of maintaining control. Now, once these kinds of regimes are in power, as I said, it's very difficult to overthrow them if they have sufficient repressive forces. And especially if they can convince their populations that they have foreign enemies. Um, you know, a, a really sad case today is what's happening in Venezuela. That the regime in Venezuela is an utter failure and yet somehow they keep control. They have repressive forces and those who run the repressive forces get privileges, of course, but they keep on saying they're foreign enemies. Uh, I mean, I think that that regime will eventually fall because aside from everything else, it's also incompetent. And that's not something you can say about Stalin or, or Mao in the same way, um, or the communist parties in those societies. But yes, having um, internal as well as external enemies is important. And if you don't find enough of them, you make them up. Well, that takes me to the last point that I wanna make. And that is what happens to these regimes as they age? One of the great historians of the French Revolution pointed out that the reign of terror, of course, as was well known, didn't last. And he said, this was a 20th century historian who also had uh, the example of the communist revolution in Russia before him and of other revolutions that had taken place in the 19th century. He said, even the most radical revolutions, even the most autocratic revolutions, even those that maintain themselves by fighting against foreign enemies, real or imagined, by fighting against internal enemies, real or imagined, eventually turn against radicalism itself. And he called that the Thermidorian reaction. Um, and he named that uh, after what happened in France. The French Revolution tried to change everything. Some of what they tried to change caught on. The metric system, for example, which every country in the world, I believe, has except the United States. Uh, there's one other small country that I know of, and I only know that because I do a bit of engineering. Yeah. So yeah, the U.S. and one other very small country. Oh yeah, do you know which one? I don't recall. It's small enough that it's not on the tip of my tongue. Okay. So. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's that's fine. But the French Revolution did more than that. They abolished the calendar that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason they did that was because they said it's really a a, a Christian. Catholic calendar. Uh, there, uh, the Catholics had uh, every day had certain saints assigned to it, and there were certain holidays. They said, We're going to do with all that. And anyway, it's not a rational system. That's what they did with the metric system. There were systems of measurement everywhere. Uh, every society has them. Um, uh, England had them, France had them, you know, um, with money and uh, uh, 
with uh, measuring length, with measuring weight, with measuring temperature. Uh, there, were, there were ways of doing that. And the French revolutionaries said, who were very much uh, enthralled with the enlightenment that was gonna rationalize everything said, look, we should have a rational system. Everything should be divisible by 10 because it's much easier to calculate things. And it is, <laughs> uh, I think about, 20 or 30 years ago, the British finally changed. But if you had gone to Britain in the old days, I think I remember there were 12 pence of the shilling, 20 shillings of the pound. And then there was something called the guinea, which was, I think, a little bit more than a pound. And you, know, you had to do all these calculations. And uh, it was like that in France and, and everywhere else. There were these not perfectly rational systems. And the French said, well, we're going to rationalize everything divisible by 10, which is the metric system. But then they said, we're going to have a calendar like that, too. Well, you can't divide the, uh, the calendar into 10 months exactly, because months were based on lunar cycles. Uh, and, but they tried to, as much as possible, do that. And they also said, what are the names of the months anyway? Uh, you know, these are old Latin names. The churches use them. Some of them are named after Roman emperors, like July is named after Julius Caesar. You know, let's have rational names. Each month should be named after a season, the season of harvest, the season of heat, the season of rain. And the season of heat, which was the middle of the summer, was Thermidor which comes to the same origin of the word as thermometer. And, uh, thermidor was the month of heat. And it was during the month of Thermidor that the French terror was overthrown. And so this historian said, every revolution has a Thermidorian moment when the radicals are overthrown. Well, that turns out to be true, but it, it can take a lot more than uh, a couple of years. And what's happened with radical regimes that have stayed in power, and it certainly happened in the Soviet Union, it's happened in Cuba as well, not as much. It's, it's happened very unfortunately uh, in uh, Algeria and other societies that were colonial and then had revolutions against their colonial powers. The elite settles in, they become an established elite and become themselves more conservative, they lose, and especially the second generation, they lose their revolutionary ideals and they become corrupt. You see this very much in Iran today. The ruling establishment is extremely corrupt um, and they impose their will, they say they're revolutionaries, uh, but they're also very corrupt. And that happened in the Soviet Union and by the end of, the Soviet Union's existence, what you had was a corrupt, essentially conservative Communist Party elite that was unwilling and unable to change. Um, that makes people unhappy uh, because uh, those societies do need change. Often their economies aren't working well and they're disgusted by the corruption of the elite. So how come it lasts so long? Well, because they have an effective autocracy and repressive systems. And so they keep on insisting on 
censoring the press, making sure that people don't find out what's really going on. Uh, China also was corrupted. China not only was corrupted, but it's, it abandoned socialism. And what's going on in China is a reaction by the Communist Party that's attempting to hide its corruption by running anti-corruption campaigns, except for Xi Jinping and his family and his friends, uh, and trying to overcome this tendency of revolutionary autocratic regimes to gradually soften without allowing more freedom, without allowing more democracy, which means trying to hide the fact of what's really happening. And eventually that cracks as well. So this is the problem that repressive institutions eventually do become corrupt. And there is a Thermidorian reaction uh, and uh, they, at least those from the past have all ended badly. Uh, whether that'll happen again, we don't know. We don't know if China will be able to change the pattern and reform itself sufficiently to survive as a communist regime in the long run. Uh, we don't know what will happen in Cuba. We don't know what will happen in Vietnam. We don't know what will happen in Algeria. Uh, I follow Algerian affairs fairly closely, uh, partly because I'm originally French. And people my age, if I had stayed in France, I would have been drafted to go fight in the colonial war in Algeria. Uh, of course, people my age here were drafted to go fight in Vietnam. Uh, what will happen? Algeria is a particularly tragic case because the old elite is still hanging on and it's very unpopular. And uh, they've been very repressive. There have been periods of civil war, uh, not against the French anymore. The French are gone, but against the regime. Uh, and uh, it's a very unstable and unfortunate situation. Now I'm going to close. Uh, I've been talking long enough. I'm going to close by making uh, some extra comments. Are all revolutions violent? Do they all lead to autocracy? Well, all right, the United States, the American Revolution was violent. I mean, we don't think of it as violent in the same way as the Russian Revolution or the Iranian Revolution or Hitler and what he did when he came to power. Uh, but considering the low population uh, in the colonies of three million, uh, there were tens of thousands of people killed, which was a pretty high number, but there was no terror afterwards. There was no purge. Um, uh, so, um, uh, uh, unlike in others, but there, there was violence uh, and all the ones I've been talking about, there was violence. Uh, and if not uh, before, then uh, afterwards, after the regimes came to power. But there have been peaceful revolutions uh, in 1989, communism collapsed in Eastern Europe. And that's often held up as an example of peaceful revolutions. It's not entirely true. It was peaceful in Poland. It was peaceful in Czechoslovakia. It was peaceful in Hungary. It was peaceful in Bulgaria. In Romania, about 1,500 people were killed. That's not a very large number. So there's still controversies in Romania about how many people were killed and who did it and, and how that happened. 
in Yugoslavia, the, the collapse of communism resulted in terrible civil wars with a couple of hundred thousand people killed and many more than that who wound up as refugees. There was also a great deal of violence in another country that uh, for some reason you don't hear very much about and that's Albania, partly because it's small, uh, partly because not many people speak Albanian who aren't Albanian and partly because Albania in the communist period was the most closed of all Eastern European countries and very few Americans got to go there and it didn't develop the number of scholars, uh, Western European or American scholars who could study the country. Uh, so for example, I, I, I studied and learned Romanian and did research there. Colleagues of mine uh, all over the country and in Europe uh, learned Polish, they learned Hungarian and so on. Well, very few Albanians because Albania was a completely closed society. So we don't know much about it and there was a good bit of violence. But in these other countries, there was no violence. So it's possible for that to happen. Unfortunately, at first, even though there was a thorough political change and economic change, social change, uh, democracy was not well established. So we see today serious backsliding, particularly in Hungary and in Poland. And we don't know what the ultimate outcome will be. But a further and final point, it is possible to have social change, to adapt to new conditions without any revolution at all. That's what Great Britain did. <laughs> Great Britain had its revolutions uh, in the 17th century. But if you look at England, or later the United Kingdom, which included Scotland and Wales, uh, and for a while Ireland, and still Northern Ireland. But it's primarily England. England in 1800 was not a democracy. It had a parliament that was voting, but something like 400 families controlled the whole country. Uh, and in fact, the nobility was really very much in charge. And it was still primarily an agrarian society, though with growing industry. By 1900, it had changed drastically. It was industrialized, it was urbanized, and voting rights had been given to the large majority of males. It wasn't until after World War I that uh, as in the United States, that women got the vote. And 50 years later, by 1950, England was even further transformed. The aristocracy had lost its political dominance. The House of Lords was no longer important. And yet, England didn't have a revolution during all that time. There were protest movements. But the parliamentary system that they had proved itself uniquely adaptable first by extending the vote by, even though there was some resistance by the nobility and by the elites, they, they gave in. They gave in and some of the most important reforms were carried out by conservatives. The English prime minister Disraeli said and acted on the notion the conservative party cannot survive unless 
it champions necessary reforms and opens itself up to democratic influence. And he was right. So it is possible there are other countries, uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, the Netherlands, that didn't go through the terrible experiences of the French Revolution or subsequent revolutions in France, which continued in the 19th and even into the 20th century. Uh, the last French Revolution was actually in 1958 when the army conducted a coup and put Charles de Gaulle in power. Uh, it didn't go through the terrible experiences of Germany, uh, of Italy, and of some others. England and some Scandinavian countries uh, gradually democratized, gradually adapted to urbanization, to modernization, to industry. And some of them, particularly the Scandinavian countries, continue to adapt. And so they avoid revolutions. And that's the final really remark that I want to make. Uh, I've talked about a few famous cases of revolutions. Uh, what I really want to say, though, is that revolutions occur when conservative forces prevent necessary reforms. And they don't need to occur in every case. France in 1785 or 86 or 87 had the resources to solve its financial problems. If only they hadn't been blocked. Uh, Russia didn't have to be run by an autocrat who was also incompetent and a fool. Um, Germany didn't need to go through the Nazi period. Uh, and so on. Uh, so when you have an incompetent government, when you have a government where conservative forces prevent reform that has to be made, then you put your society in danger. And that's a lesson for us because in this country, we have a lot of problems. Now, I mean, we're not on the verge of a Bolshevik revolution. We're not on the verge <laughs> of a fascist revolution. Though there's some who say that the Trump movement really is heading in that direction. Maybe in some ways, we're not there yet. Where we are, however, is that for at least 30 years, maybe a bit longer, necessary reforms have been blocked. So we have rising inequality. There's been some improvement in the healthcare system, though conservatives continue to fight uh, what's called Obamacare, and the healthcare system is still amazingly disorganized and inept for a country as rich and as scientifically talented as we are. And that's been shown by the terrible reaction we've had to this virus. Uh, you know, it would have happened anyway, but if it had been better managed, uh, we'd have several hundred thousand deaths fewer. In fact, there was an article recently in the New York Times, maybe other newspapers picked it up, that a calculation was made that if the United States had the same death rate for the uh, COVID-19 virus as the state of Washington, there would have been 225,000 fewer deaths now. So, uh, but we have other problems. We have terrible infrastructural problems now that's amazing 
60, 70 years ago, the infrastructure in the United States was a model for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Republican administration of Dwight Eisenhower, uh, we built the interstate system. Uh, we created uh, commercial aviation uh, to such an extent that uh, for many measurements that are used, uh, they still use uh, feet and American measurements because we really invented that. Uh, uh, we invented the computer. We, we did a lot, uh, but that's, that's stalled. Private businesses still work. The economy still works. It would be working better if it weren't for the virus. But the problems of inequality, the problems of healthcare, the problems of infrastructure, these are not getting solved. The problem of climate change, which is very real, is not getting addressed at all, even though it's affecting large parts of the United States, including California and Florida, most notably Florida because of rising oceans. Uh, you know, Miami is going to be underwater in 20, 30 years. It's already underwater for part of every year. Uh, California's fires are not going to go away. It's just going to get worse and it's going to spread. Uh, and these are problems that we know how to address. We know what to do. And private businesses can do some of it, but without reform at the top and in the society as a whole, these problems pile up. And that's one of the results of that is the discontent that you see. Um, We should have adapted better to globalization and to the loss of jobs for many people. Uh, We should have found ways of helping them. It's possible. We didn't do it and they're unhappy. That doesn't mean they turn to the left, they turn in this country more to the right. But you see that some of what's happened in the last four years or even longer is really the result of rising discontent and unhappiness because we're not addressing these problems. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in 1750 or 1760, (laughs) no one in the United States, in the colonies, really thought or even imagine that there could be a revolution. And that was true in France. Um, And that was true in many other places as well. Uh, And yet, because things weren't done in time when they could have been done, and some countries have done them better uh, than others, uh, when they weren't done, problems piled up. And that doesn't always produce a catastrophic revolution, but it creates the potential for it. And if that ever happens here, we're in really big trouble because wherever it's happened, there's been a lot of trouble. And we can't count on escaping that trouble the way it seemed for a while that Eastern Europe did when communism fell. Yeah. Okay. I think I've talked long enough. Well, thank you. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I I uh, I have thirty one questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I told Bo to keep it short, so he did. I said so that that's that's me keeping it short. Um, Dan, do you want to go ahead and ask questions first? Uh, why don't you take a crack at it, sir? Okay. Um, so the first, I don't know actually where to start, so I'll just look at the question that's on my screen here. You mentioned that revolution of occurs when conservative forces don't accept necessary change. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering why you think that is versus uh, say more liberal or open 
forces maybe making too much change. That would seem to me to be the, the corollary, like the opposite end of that spectrum. I'm curious why it's the conservative forces that sort of drive this. Well, you know, sometimes those conservative forces don't call themselves conservatives. Um, I mean, the, the uh, communist elite in mm-hmm. the Soviet Union in the, in the 1970s and 80s, they didn't call themselves conservatives. They called themselves communists. Yeah. And yet problems piled up there. And by the time Gorbachev tried to address them, it was in a sense too late. Mm-hmm. So look, it's a natural human inclination. You know, I'm, I'm rich. I'm comfortable. I have a beautiful house. My family's healthy. And someone comes along and says, uh, you know, you should be paying more taxes. Uh, <laughs> look, look at how much you're benefiting from everything. And I say, oh, oh, I agree. We should change it. But no, no, you shouldn't be taxing me. <laughs> right, right. You, 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 wanna, you want me to pay more in real estate taxes? You want me to pay, here I am in Washington, you want me to pay income tax? Oh, no. I mean, if you make me pay income tax, I'm going to move to Texas because they don't have income tax. So it's a natural human inclination if you're comfortable and well off to say, why do we need change? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and so uh, th- that's what I really call conservative. Though you, yeah. might call, you might call yourself a communist, you might call yourself anything else. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> those who are in charge tend to, and who are well off, tend to not want to change too much. Sure, and that makes sense. I mean, yeah, we're kind of we're kind of adverse to change. It yeah. can be dangerous, you know. So. I, I I really do. I I believe that we need change. I just don't want my taxes to go up. <laughs> <laughs> so sure, of course, sure. Of course, if you don't, if my taxes don't go, I mean, I'm I'm saying me, you know, in a general sort of way. Uh, I mean, if taxes don't go up, we can't make these some of these necessary changes. It sure. can't all come from the private sector. Um, I've, I've got a question. Sure. Um, you had mentioned some of the ingredients necessary to facilitate a revolution, one of which being political incompetence. I think we can check that box. Yes. Um, but other than that, what are some of the ingredients that you see present day that are most alarming for the United States? Oh, the resistance, the resistance to necessary change. Uh, you know, Obamacare is only a partial solution. Of all the advanced countries in the world, we had the most disorganized healthcare system. And it showed. Uh, among wealthy countries, we were um, pretty close to the bottom, or rather to the top, in infant mortality. Now, our infant mortality, you know, was not like in poor countries. Uh, but compared to European countries or to Japan or to South Korea, our mortality rates were not great. Uh, not only that, but it has been shown by the pandemic, uh, the harm in our healthcare system is that the poorest people, which are disproportionately, not entirely certainly, but disproportionately minorities, have terrible healthcare problems. And the mortality rates, uh, obesity, opioid use, and so on. I mean, a lot of these things 
even diseases that really no one should die of anymore still exist. Uh, <clears throat> though it doesn't show up the way it does uh, in some countries. Uh, you know, we're not dying of malaria. There used to be a lot of malaria in this country, by the way, uh, never up here in the Northwest, but, but uh, it went as far, <clears throat> as far north as New Jersey. Oh, wow. Uh, on the East Coast, yeah. Uh, and it was really bad in the South, uh, of course. Uh, so, okay, we, we, we've handled that. Uh, but it shows up in obesity, heart disease, certain cancer rates, and so on. If you're well off in this country, and I don't mean the top 1%, I mean, you know, the top maybe more than half of the population and have good health insurance, we have a very good healthcare system. But if you're not in it, you're in trouble. So why, why in the world did the Republican Party so oppose reforming the healthcare system? When Medicare started, and that was under Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. Uh, a famous uh, actor who had become a spokesman for conservative forces, Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. said about Medicare that it was so bad, he said, in the future, we will remember that this was once a free country. And Medicare was going to make us unfree. Where does that come from? Uh, actually, Where does Medicare, that come from? That's, that, yeah. Well, you know, Medicare saved old people in this country because in the old system, your health care was dependent on your employment. And if you no longer had employment, if you were retired, if you didn't have the means to pay for private insurance, you were screwed. And Medicare really helped. Obamacare really helped. So why have there been blocks in that? It was a Republican administration. And make no mistake, Dwight Eisenhower was not radical. He was a conservative man. He knew how bad our road system was. There's a whole long story about that when he was a more junior officer in the 1920s, he was tasked with taking a convoy across the United States. And our road system was so bad, it took a month or something like that to get across. And then during World War II, he saw the Autobahn system that Hitler had built. And when he became president, he was convinced that the government should do something to create a national road system. And he did. So. Why could we do that in the past and not now? Uh, we once had uh, the world's best airports. Uh, now, it depends what airport you go to, but if you fly in from Singapore to um, Kennedy Airport in New York, you think you're going from a rich country to a third world country. <laughs> now, I mean, not every airport is as bad as Kennedy, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> But you know, it's New York, it's New York's major international airport. So, so what's going on? Well, you know as much about the country you live in as I do, uh, maybe more. Uh, so uh, it's those kinds of failure to reform. You know, the French aristocracy knew that if they paid fair taxes, they could solve the problem. 
of France's fiscal deficit. <laughs> and they were just unwilling to do it. And once the revolution came and started raising taxes, France got out of its fiscal difficulties really quickly. And in, in fact, France was able to mobilize such a powerful forces that it conquered all of Europe until Napoleon went too far and tried to conquer Russia too. But France had the resources to do that. So why didn't it? Well, it was this sense, we don't want to, we don't want to change. We don't want to increase our taxes. Uh, so explain that. And, and so what happened to the English elite? There were plenty of English uh, well-off people, uh, lords, aristocrat, landowners who didn't want to change, but the political system allowed it. And that, that, that is in a sense a mystery. And um, the United States was able to adapt quite well to many changes. And then at some point, I think starting in the 1980s, um, it seemed to gradually lose that ability. Uh, and at the time of the Great Depression, there was the same resistance, but the depression was so bad that when Roosevelt was elected, he was able to change things. Uh, of course, he had a very large democratic majority in Congress. There's a dark side, by the way, to the New Deal and to Roosevelt. In order to keep his majority, he never touched the South because the South was entirely democratic at that time. That is democratic in the sense of being with a democratic party. So he, he knew and his wife was constantly intervening, lobbying him for reform in our, in segre against segregation. And he was never willing to do it because he was afraid to lose his majority. And that allowed him to carry out important reforms. And then eventually the Republicans joined in and continued these reforms under Eisenhower. Even Nixon, who uh, you know, in other respects uh, was uh, dishonest and paranoid, but he continued that path of reforms and was willing to accept them and uh, carried out even more. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, which Trump has tried to destroy, that was created by, uh, under Nixon. And the first people who ran it were Republicans. So. What happened? Well, I'm not so sure, but uh, that, that's the real danger that we face. And, and it's continuing. And you know, I never understood the bitter opposition to Obamacare, which is not a very radical solution. It doesn't eliminate uh, private insurance. It, it doesn't, uh, for, for the costs that it imposes on people, it brings great benefits to yeah. practically everyone. Uh, I mean, even to people who are well off, uh, who can keep their children on insurance until they're 26, who are guaranteed that they won't be refused insurance uh, if they get something uh, or if they lose, or if you lose your job. You can have a good job, have a good health insurance, and if you lose it, what do you do? Uh, so anyway. My hypothesis on that, and this is uh, born out of close to pure ignorance, meaning I don't know a whole lot about politics nor history, although I find it fascinating. But it would seem that um, part of the reason that it, it's becoming harder to understand how uh, 
um, how people would allow these things to happen and and why why the Republicans would so vehemently oppose these types of changes that seem to just make sense is that the the evolution of the ability for corporate interests to influence politics. I mean, of course, it's always been there, but as I understand it, uh, particularly beginning around the Clinton era, is the the efficiency and effectiveness and and frankly, just the brute force of dollars that can be pushed into politics by corporate entities um, has you know further corrupted the system itself. Again, none of this is new, but I think you know in the last few decades we are seeing um, you know a refinement of that, and you know that leads to the decay of the you know the effectiveness of government in general. Whereas it would seem just about everybody in the highest levels of office are in at least a few pockets, and they are um, much more interested with keeping their corporate interest happy than the entirety of the American people. Um, well, that's that's um, that's certainly true, but it's always been true, and uh, the. I, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I bring it up because, again, it's, of course, you know, it's always been true, but much like um, we've always had the ability to communicate with each other via letters and eventually a telephone, um, the efficiency of the internet has made a significant change that we're seeing now in terms of communication, which, you know, leads to these echo chambers and increased radicalism and all this, whereas the, 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 um, the things that are happening themselves are nothing new, but the tactics and technologies behind them have effectively revolutionized those systems to make them far more dangerous. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's possible, but there's something else too. So um, the kind of intervention in politics of, of very big businesses was always there, but, uh, there were countervailing forces. So you don't know, and in fact, I don't know. I could look it up. I've seen it, but I've forgotten who the head of the AFL CIO of the labor union movement is. In the 50s, everyone knew the name of the person who was the head of it because that was one of the most important political figures in the country. And the union movement was strong. It was never a, a majority of everyone, but it was strong. And the decline of unions is part of what's happened. Uh, and that's a very interesting phenomenon. And it's partly the fault of unions themselves because they became corrupted in protection societies uh, for uh, their members. Uh, it's partly the result of consistent attacks against them over a long period of time. It's a combination of forces, but the way to have, and by the way, the people who wrote the American constitution, even if they were slaveholders, uh, and in particular James Madison, but uh, also Hamilton, Washington bought into it, thought that the best way to prevent tyranny was to have countervailing forces. So our, our government was set up that way, that the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive were supposed to be forces 
controlling each other. But in the society as a whole, the same thing is also true. So uh, there were powerful forces that resisted domination by a few big business interests. Uh, in the progressive era, uh, and it actually started in the late 19th century, uh, the United States wrote anti-monopoly laws. Remember, Adam Smith was very much opposed to monopolies and thought it was an ever-present danger. If you're opposed to monopolies, then you have businesses that also compete against each other. Uh, they may all want fewer taxes, but they don't all want the same thing because they also compete against each other. One of the bad things about our tech companies is not just the way they convey information, but that they really are now running monopolies mm -hmm. in cahoots with each other. You know, this just came out that Google and, uh, Google and Apple and Facebook, they collude with each other to keep control. Uh, and that's bad for democracy. It's bad for reform. It's bad for change. As I say, Adam Smith knew that. Uh, the people who wrote uh, the American Constitution knew that a balance of forces were important. So uh, we may have lost that and can only regain it by political organization and reviving countervailing forces. That's what we really need. How do we make a case for that? I mean, us sitting here talking, of course, that sounds logical and quite necessary. Um, but how does one convince a large group of people, group of voters, to to go that direction with well, enough? Well, look, we just had we just had an amazing case of just how political organization can make a difference, and that's in Georgia. True. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have believed that Georgia could have left two Democratic senators. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, Trump helped a lot, I mean, un unwittingly, but still. Uh, so organization. Um, Let's get Stacey Abrams on that. Yeah. <laughs> She's making but, stuff happen. But also involving young people. Um, so um, reorganizing a new labor movement. Uh, that takes into account that the old labor movement that was based on uh, an industrial economy that used a lot of what used to be called working class members who could just with a high school degree go work for General Motors and make enough money to have a little summer home and a boat and really lead middle class lives. That's gone. Yes. Uh, so, but uh, that doesn't mean that everyone's a plutocrat, right? It doesn't mean that everyone's in the top one percent. Mm -hmm. So, uh, organization, and, and and when you talk about that, the the power of organization is open to the right as well as to the left. So, uh, who's doing what? How effectively? Mm -hmm. And liberals as a whole have been relatively ineffective in organization. Um, the liberal paradigm, liberal model coming out of the New Deal and all the great successes the United States had in the 50s and 60s, uh, sort of uh, uh, 
deluded liberals into thinking that um, that was a model set forever. Mm -hmm. And uh, since the, really since Reagan, and even more in a way in the 1990s, uh, conservatives have done a better job organizing. And they fool people too, because they've made people think that it's for the ordinary person that they have more fear from the left. Uh, but um, but the same thing has happened within the Republican Party. Uh, I, I my wife and I actually used to regularly vote Republican, uh, and uh, we didn't really change until. Uh, this century, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, the model of republicanism that I had uh, was, I don't know if you even remember his name, he was governor here and Senator Dan Evans. Uh, he's in his 90s now and long retired, but, uh, or the last Republican governor we had, Spellman. Uh, uh, these are very reasonable people. Um, uh, Rockefeller you know, and others were very reasonable people. They were more conservative, uh, but that was, that was fine. They were not eager to stop all change. So something happened, something happened and, and it's very deep. And that's why I can't really give you satisfactory answers. It's not just Trump. Uh, and you can say it's more the Republicans than the Democrats, but, but the Democrats are at fault but the Republican elite is also at fault. You know, they were all against Trump. Uh, Until they weren't, yeah. Yeah, well, he, he outwitted them because he won in the primaries. Yeah. Uh, so how did that happen? How did this old elite uh, uh, lose control? You know, we have very few black senators. Uh, there's one in Georgia, there, there, there are a few, but the first black, a after Reconstruction, during Reconstruction for a while, there were quite a few African-Americans uh, in Congress and the Senate from the South. But the imposition of um, uh, Jim Crow laws and all just killed all of that. But in modern times, the first Republican senator who was an African-American was actually from Massachusetts and he was a Republican. Mm -hmm. So that remains to be written. What happened to the Republican Party? What happened to the union movement? What happened to liberals who weren't as good as organizing? What happened to the old conservative but relatively moderate Republican elite that lost control? Uh, those are all very interesting questions. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you, I mean, I'm not a specialist on the United States. We're talking a lot about the United States while we live here, but uh, I actually know uh, more about some other countries. And you have the same questions uh, about what happened in France, not just in the 1800s, but France has had a very troubled political history. Uh, after the revolution of 1789, there was a, a, the terror, the terror was overthrown. Uh, then there was a, a, 
military dictatorship that ruined France, Napoleon did. Uh, and then the monarchy came back and it was overthrown in 1830 and a new monarchy came and it was overthrown in 1848 and there was a new republic and it was overthrown by a military coup, by a coup conducted by another Napoleon and he was overthrown. And there was a, a civil war mostly in Paris over whether radicals or moderates would take power. Uh, and then uh, uh, France had a very divided political system. They lost uh, the war in, uh, in 1940 against the Germans and France was very divided between those who collaborated and those who didn't. And it emerged, tried to put itself back together. And uh, there was a military coup in 1958. Uh, France is on its fifth republic since 1789. They've had uh, three different kinds of monarchy uh, and uh, five republics. <laughs> so, wow. So, They're busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and now there's some French commentators who are saying it's time to do away with the fifth republic and start with the sixth republic. <laughs> and, and during all that time, the United States has had one republic, right? Yeah. I mean, saved by Lincoln, of course, and the Civil War, but still... So uh, if you look at the details, you have to know a lot about the details to come up with explanations. And so you have to leave it to people who study American history and American politics to try to understand. I haven't seen any fully worked out good explanations of why the United States has fallen the way it has. Yeah. Because it was a country that was reputed to be progressive, to be able to adapt to... Uh, be in the forefront of technological change. And in some ways we still are. Uh, uh, um, uh, and I don't think the Chinese model is a better model, but uh, uh, I, it has to be studied carefully why we're failing. It's, it's not just Trump, it's not just the Republican party, that something's happened. And uh, I can probably tell you better why something happened in France in the 1780s that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, what happened here in the 1980s? 1980s? Sure. Well, along those lines, um, it, it, part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you is from a historical perspective, um, and particularly from somewhere other than the United States, but a global historical perspective. Um, where do you think the events of today line up with previous revolutions? And And part of the bit of information most people would be interested in is, you know, how likely are we to find ourselves in a revolution or a civil war or something equally terrible here in the U.S.? You know, what's the threat level for civil war, if you will, just based on historical premise? Right. Well, if you'd asked me that 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said that the probability of a major political upheaval of some sort of civil war was close to zero. It's not close to zero now, it's much higher and it's real. And based on what I know, it's the problem that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. If we don't deal with some of our problems, then we're heading in that direction. How that will turn out, I don't know. Um, 
Strangely enough, I think that if, uh, well, not so strangely, I'm certainly not the only person to say this. I've, I've read a lot of op-ed pieces saying that if Trump had been a smarter, more organized person, we would be in much more trouble. Agreed, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, now then maybe he, if he didn't have his personality, he, he wouldn't have been such a media star. And if he hadn't been such a media star, he might not have gained such political power. But he's a fundamentally lazy and not terribly confident man other than in promoting his own image. He really was a failed businessman. Yeah. There are a lot smarter people. You know, if you look at some of the dictators that we've talked about, they were, I mean, someone like Stalin was a fantastically hard worker, well-organized, very shrewd judge of character. He was a monster, but- uh, Very he, competent. Yeah. And even Hitler, who became really quite insane in his last year, I mean, he was a very sick man, uh, was a fantastic organizer. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and and that's been true of really successful dictators. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't—they didn't do things just off the cuff like that. So, yeah. so in a way, we're lucky, but we're also unlucky. But uh, what would you say? Um, and and I totally agree. I think it, it's been said that you know Trump's not the problem. Trump is just a symptom of the problem, and we were fortunate that rather than a a true dictator he really is just a narcissist right looking yeah. to to better his own interests which he yeah. has done yeah. um but, but he did but the, a lot of harm was done uh, <laughs> in some policies but also and i know this from knowing people who work in the civil service in washington uh, a lot of our administration is really badly hurt they're having yeah. trouble recruiting good young people. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw this. I'm I'm about to retire because uh, I'm 78. But uh, uh, you know, until just recently, I had contact with students. When I started teaching at the Jackson School, a lot of our students wanted to go work for the State Department. Uh, some went to work for the CIA. Uh, some who went into the military became officers. Uh, I find, I have found in the last few years that uh, this, the number who want to go into government service is much less than before. They want to go work for NGOs or international organizations. They're still, because it's a school of international studies, they still are interested in international issues, but there's much less enthusiasm. And people I know in Washington in really important civil service jobs say that uh, so many of the higher ups who could retire, uh, or in some cases get jobs paying twice as much or three times as much. If they, I mean, if you're a high up expert in something, uh, uh, an expert lawyer in trade, for example, matters, you can leave the government and triple your salary. Uh, and that was happening at, at an alarming rate. Um, so uh, that, that's where the real harm has been done, but anyway. Yeah, well, no, yeah, tremendous harm. I, I'm definitely not trying to lighten the impact of what Trump has done. Um, but I, I guess that what I what do you want to highlight is it could have been a whole lot worse. It could have been you worse. Said if someone yeah. was 
actually intelligent with uh, nefarious intent and looking to actually be a dictator uh, could have been a lot worse. So uh, in a way, we dodged it. We didn't dodge the bullet. We got grazed by the bullet <laughs> was Trump. But what can we do? What are the guardrails that we can get in place now that we have uh, we have seen the vulnerability in the system that would allow a Trump to come to power. Does that make sense? What I've said is, it's what I've said, you know, organization building up countervailing forces. uh, So is that a focus on, on getting a stronger union base or are there other political things that that, that that, need to be addressed? That would help. Um, uh, Better education, and I don't mean in our uh, elite colleges or universities, and I would even include the University of Washington in that. The University of Washington is not Princeton or Harvard, but you know it's one of the leading research institutions in the world. Mm-hmm. And on the whole, students are, are, are pretty good. I'm talking at a much lower level. I'm talking high school all over the country greater appreciation of what it was that the United States was built on, its ideals, uh, what the enlightenment was, what science is. Uh, It's shocking how many students graduate from high school without ever having had a serious science course. So um, it's shocking uh, that and it, it, there's a lot of variation in high schools. Uh, they're private schools, there's variation there, but even public schools, even in the state of Washington, I noticed, uh, I won't, don't wanna say where, but there are certain parts of the state where students have come into the university and uh, seem to be, excuse me, seem to be, uh, <laughs> must be allergies coming back. But anyway, <laughs> That's all right. Um, the students seem to be astoundingly ignorant of history, of science. Um, so I and, wanted to ask about this actually. Um, and so, so I mean, I, I, you know, let me be clear. I'm talking about a long rebuilding operation, uh, not what can be done next year, but there's a lot to rebuild. Um, most people, uh, yeah, most people get high school degrees now, but it's possible in some parts of this state and of this country to graduate from high school and not have enough math, not have enough science, not have enough history. And that just shouldn't be. Uh, maybe we don't pay school teachers enough. Uh, I, I agree with that. I would agree with that too. And what I find curious, and I'm curious to get your opinion on this, uh, Professor, is that the history is a big question for me. Like part of the reason I'm very fascinated with communism is that I didn't learn what communism was until I was 30 and I'm 32. I'll be 33 in May. And so I literally didn't, I didn't learn about it until I was in my thirties doing independent study. And I was like, oh, that's what the other thing was in Europe. It wasn't, I learned about the Nazis and Hitler and the Holocaust and uh-huh. Stuff, but and I was shocked by this that I'd gone through you know 16 years of education and never learned about it. The other thing that I find very interesting, and I think you brought up an int- you brought it up, was um, a lack of like math and science 
teaching with younger kids is there is a little bit of a push, it seems. This is happening quite a bit in California, a bit in New York. I, I've even heard of some school districts in, in Washington and particularly in Seattle doing this, where they're um, they're teaching they're teaching math and science a little bit differently. And on top of that, they're also teaching um, against the enlightenment values that you're advocating for, right? They're, 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 they're not going through and explaining the way, the foundations on which our country was built yeah. and why we should be proud of those things. Um, uh -huh. Instead, they're tearing them, they're teaching to tear those things down and have different values. Uh -huh. um, and I'm wondering, because like my personal opinion is that I don't see why we should, approach it with such a negativity there are a lot of things to be negative about like history is very very bloody very dirty there's a lot of problems but um, um it seems as if you may agree in the in the respect that we should bring back a more fundamental focus on those enlightenment values that we can adhere to that make us better as a culture yeah. as a people i i i uh, i definitely do agree uh and as for math and science i mean those aren't my fields Mm -hmm. But um, I have a very close friend um, in the math department who has noticed uh, how wide a disparity there is between different schools. And uh, it's not that all public high schools do a bad job teaching those things. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just a lot of variation. Um, sure. And, uh, but, uh, the point you just made about abandoning a lot of uh, teaching about what was right about the Enlightenment, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's that's really the fault of the left. Uh, yes, I would has, agree with that. Has, has not defended what it should be defending. Uh, and even uh, some of my colleagues at the university, I would blame for that. And in their case, it's not because they're too far to the right. It's just the opposite. So, uh, but it's very tricky to find the right balance. Yes. And, um, but uh, whatever you may think, I still think that teachers should be better paid. <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that, especially at the public education level, like in high schools, elementary yeah. schools. Well, strangely, um, you know, a lot of private schools uh, pay even less. And that's true. Who, yeah. And teachers are willing to go there because uh, it's uh, quieter, less subject to political pressures. Yep. So smaller, you know, cla smaller class sizes. Yeah. Yeah. More autonomy so, with their with their curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so um, uh, I sent my children to uh, private schools, but I have colleagues who sent their uh, children uh, to uh, good public high schools in uh, Seattle who have been very happy with them. Sure. Uh, so, but it, uh, you're out of my field of expertise. <laughs> what, no I worries. About, <laughs> what I know about schools is, uh, is largely from the experience of my uh, uh, kids. Sure. And what they I have. I have uh a subject change question and it has to do with um uh you would address lafayette oh and, and um in the uh, per particular issue with moderates they tend to start off in charge and then they tend to get removed and and you talk a bit more about that in your book 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious, given the polarity that we see in the in the U.S. right now, and how moderate uh, our as of today current president Joe Biden is. Do you see him as a potential Lafayette figure? Well, I hope I hope. Not. I mean, obviously, I hope not too. I want to make that clear, but he, <laughs> yeah, he's. I, he's I, He's been moderate since the 70s and we're very polarized. And I, yeah, no, he's been moderate his whole life. I mean, I don't know what he was like when he was 10, but he was in his 20s yeah. in politics. So, uh, so the pattern I see is that, yes, there are forces on the far left, but they have not taken over the Democratic Party. I mean, Biden won through our primary system. Right, and he won overwhelmingly. Yes, uh, and uh, so that suggests to me that, in fact, the more most radical forces right now are are on the right, not on the left. Yeah, there are people on the left. Uh, you know, the some uh, congresswomen uh, who talk about, and we have some politicians like that here in Seattle who talk about socialism and who uh, seem to want to dismantle uh, capitalism. Yeah. Uh, but they, they have not taken over the party. Uh, so the the equivalent to Tea Party or to the radical right that is so powerful in the Republican Party is much weaker uh, in the Democratic Party. And you see, they, they, they've already started complaining about Biden, but yep. uh, but but they lost the elect the, the primaries, and um, you know the greatest danger from them is they have enough votes so that if they abandon the Democrats, as many of them abandon Hillary Clinton, uh, then that just opens up things to the right. Yeah. Uh, because they're very far from getting a majority of the uh, of the Democratic Party or any kind of control outside of a few uh, districts. Um, well, I, along those lines, do you what what do you think that the risk of that happening is in light of um, some of the the um, critical race theory trainings and things along those nat- that nature, the, the social justice activism that um, in my mind under the guise of social justice is really trying to indoctrinate people into a cause that has very little to do with bettering the lives of uh, minorities. Um, but rea- rather, it's, it seems to be more of a power grab. Yeah, look, I, look I, I, I agree with you, but I don't think that those forces are about to win. Sure. Well, do you, do you, maybe not in the immediate, but oh, well, if it like happens, if it they're, they're making good headway in education, whereas yeah. the children are being taught some of these things yeah. that are not only you know not productive, but in my mind, dangerous to... Mm-hmm. Uh, to everybody, really, um, and the fact that that is being allowed um, to to permeate the educational system seems to be it, it's setting its roots. Yeah, well, if it if it happens, uh, then we're in very deep trouble. You know, when when the 
the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution turned into a fight between very conservative and very radical forces that opened the gate to catastrophes. Yeah. And if that happens here, so I mean, I was very pleased to see Biden win. I've been very pleased by the way in which he's trying to balance things. Um, and right now, I think the threat from the right is much greater than from the left. But you're absolutely right. If, if the far left uh, really manages to do to the Democrats what the far right managed to do to the Republicans, then, then we're in a civil war situation. Sure. So, um, you know, if Biden had the fate of Lafayette, he would wind up fleeing to Canada to escape uh, the guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually think that's going to happen. <laughs> but Lafayette, no, I don't. If, if no, Lafayette I don't. hadn't fled, he would have been guillotined. Yeah. Uh, he fled uh, when, when a warrant for his arrest was put out. And I don't it expect like to get moved. Right. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't see the same thing happening, obviously, to, <laughs> to Biden. But I just thought it was interesting, given yeah. the uh, the syndrome that you talk about, the Lafayette syndrome of what happens to moderates is that he's yeah. a moderate who's in the middle of a lot of very angry polarity. Yeah. So, you know, what happened? you know what happened to him when he fled? The Austrians arrested him and put him in prison for five years. Mm hmm. Because they thought he was a dangerous radical. <laughs> and, 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 and by that time, the United States existed. Uh, you know, this was uh, 1790. When did he flee? In 92 or 93? 93, I think. Yeah. Uh, and uh, American diplomatic representatives, including George Washington, who was president, who was who known by European elites. You know, the diplomats were trying to get him out. Uh, because he was uh, such a hero here and they admired him. And the Austrians finally let him go. And uh, when Napoleon took power, he went back. He was one of France's richest men and his property had been confiscated, but he got some of it back. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was wealthy again. And he came back, he lived in France under Napoleon. Napoleon offered him high positions and he refused. Uh, he didn't like Napoleon because Napoleon was uh, an autocrat. Uh, and he, in the 1820s, he just stayed out of politics. In the 1820s, he toured the United States. There's a portrait of him um, in the House of Representatives. I'm dressed like a wealthy gentleman uh, of the 1820s, which is very different than the dress that he's known for here when he was a young man and dress styles were very different. And in 1830, as an old man, when the monarchy was overthrown in a new revolution, he was offered the leadership of France mm -hmm. and he refused. He, he felt he was too old and he thought that it would be better for France to have a constitutional monarchy. And one was established, but it turned out to not be as constitutional or as liberal as he had hoped. So he died a disappointed man. But uh, he had a very, very interesting uh, life history. Um, yeah. And um, so, um, but again, 
you know, he's still considered a historical hero in France as he is here. Sure. Um, I'm uh, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind, um, in your own words, breaking down the difference between, as you see it, between socialism and communism. You had mentioned earlier something along the lines of Russia attempting in with their communist uh, agenda in putting forth a complete socialism. Yeah. And, and so I, I was curious if you can kind of break down how you view the differences, what they are, if there are any, and maybe if you wanted to go into, if there's time, there probably isn't go into the differences between those and Leninism and Stalinism, Maoism. There's, I know there's a lot of branches. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, part of it is, is just, um, uh, arguments about terminology. Yeah. And you can do that about almost any important political term. You know, what is liberalism? Uh, so I read accounts that say that uh, Bernie Sanders is, um, or, or even more Ocasio-Cortez, is on the liberal side of the Democratic Party. She's not a liberal. <laughs> uh, liberal used to mean something more moderate, certainly not socialist in the sense that liberals always believe in the value of a market system. Um, but you can do that with socialism, conservatism, fascism. Um, there were many regimes in Europe and elsewhere that were called fascism in Asia, in Latin America. And if your model of what a fascist regime is like is, is Hitlerism, well, there were a lot that, you know, I mean, no other killed as many people and there was a lot of variation. So um, rather than saying anything about what Marxist theory says that socialism is the final stage uh, and what the Communist Party said was that uh, they had to use force in order to make changes, but they weren't going to get there right away. They had to create a new society and eventually they would be socialism. And then you have people saying they think that Sweden is socialist. Sweden's not socialist actually. As far as the economy goes, the French government intervenes more in their economy than the Swedish government does in their economy. Um, there's some world leading private firms that are Swedish, you know, they're not, uh, uh, so uh, what, Sweden has is, or Denmark, all the Scandinavian countries, is a well-developed welfare system and protection for individuals from sickness, uh, support of education, uh, and with that high taxes, but uh, they don't own the means of production. Socialism originally meant owning the means of production or at least the key means of production, the major factories, the railroads, and so on. So-called socialist parties in Europe originally wanted that and gradually abandoned it because it didn't work. It was necessary for some areas of the economy. Uh, the French found out that you couldn't have private railroads because they didn't make enough money. Uh, a good a good example here is uh, the subway system in New York City. It loses money 
if it charged enough to break even, people couldn't afford it. So why should the government support it? Well, because without it, the city would break down and lots of people, and this is where government has to intervene. There are certain services that you can't make people pay what they really cost. But if they break down, the whole society suffers. If the New York City subway system failed, the city would break down. So lots of people, everyone in New York benefits from a public transportation system, but not everyone pays into it because those who are very well off take taxis or drive cars. Yeah. But if a public transportation system didn't exist, the roads would be clogged and everyone would suffer. So there are lots of things like that. Wanting to try to make those things part of the government is not socialism. Taking at the extreme, which is what happened in communist countries, everything be controlled by the government. Little stores, you know, not just public transportation, not just hospitals, not just schools, yeah. but every industry, every factory, every store, every restaurant. That's a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And that's the other end. So uh, and socialist parties in Europe tried to sort of find a way to be somewhere in the middle. The last time uh, there was uh, in France a, a real effort to have socialism was in the early 1980s when a socialist government in alliance with the communists in France, uh, who still had a significant party at that time, uh, took over the banking system. And it very quickly abandoned it because it just wasn't working. So you have to distinguish social welfare, taking care of old people, having uh, a government supported healthcare system that helps people who can't afford it. That's beneficial for the whole society. Is that socialism? I wouldn't call it socialism. Sure. Um, that the government runs certain services, that's necessary that it provides certain services, that it helps build infrastructure, that it pays for research, um, that, that's fine. Um, real socialism originally meant much more than that. And that has turned out to not work very well. And the most extreme forms don't work at all. Yeah. And that's what the Chinese have discovered, right? I mean, they're, the government is very powerful. It, uh, it suppresses uh, free thought. It's taking over uh, all news media. It's, it's, it's reasserting its power in certain industries. They're not going to be, I'm sure, stupid enough to want to take over every little mom and pop shop. But I lived for a year in Romania when it was communist. And it was astounding how inefficient it was. Uh, you know, restaurants didn't, didn't work. Why didn't they work? Well, um, uh, waiters were paid uh, too little. Uh, there wasn't enough high quality food. And so there were some fancy restaurants that were state owned. And what I found out was that the way they operated was that people paid money to get a job as a waiter there because they stole food and then sold it on the black market. <laughs> <laughs> there was free health care, but doctors and nurses weren't paid enough. 
So what I found out was that if you went to a hospital and you didn't bribe the staff, they didn't change your sheets and they didn't bring you food. Oh, wow. So everything was free except nothing was free. Yeah. Uh, everything was so corrupted. You couldn't get by in life without paying off people. Yeah. And that's, why, that's what, yeah. So uh, that, that, that's why the total socialist dream of Lenin and the others couldn't possibly work. So Stalin's solution was to purge people and kill people if they didn't perform. So it sort of worked. I mean, the system survived, but it wasn't very good. <laughs> and after he died, the terror let up and it just became corruption. Yeah. Why, after so many failures, do you think that the ideology still exists. I don't... Because, because it's a nice dream. Everybody equal, everybody happy, enough for everyone. And I have the, I have the same question. I, I presume it's the same answer for, um, for like ethno-nationalist style ideologies as well. Like they, they don't seem to work to me either, but they still persist too. You see that on the right. You see a lot of nationalist countries that are very extraordinarily repressive and autocratic and I, and yeah, fail. Well, look, um, that's a, that's a, another really big question. So countries that have no nationalism fail. Uh, you want to know a country that has no nationalism? Afghanistan. <laughs> that doesn't be, mean people don't have an identity. They have their tribal identity. They have their clan identities. And those are the institutions they look to for protection, not the national government. Mm -hmm. Lebanon is like that. So you can't actually operate a modern country without some level of nationalism. Sure. Because you could in the past, um, in uh, the 13th century, the Duchess of Aquitaine, which is close to maybe about 20% of what is today France, uh, married the king of France. And so her province became part of France. Then they split up and she married the king of England. And so that part of France became English and was ruled by the English for quite a long time. And I used to give that as an example to students. The people in Aquitaine didn't speak either French or English. <laughs> they spoke uh, a language, a Latin language, um, you know, that was different from French, the way Italian is different from French, but there, there are a lot of similarities or Spanish. Did they care? No, they didn't care. Um, they didn't expect much from the state. And all the state wanted from them was obedience and they would pay their taxes. Uh, there weren't any public schools. Uh, what schools there were were only for a small number of people and they were run by the church. Uh, uh, there were no, there was very little, there were very few public works. There were some mostly built for military purposes. Later on, states started to build some public works, canals and so on, as the Romans used to do. But, uh, 
peasants didn't, ex most people were peasants. They didn't expect much. The state didn't expect that much for them, from them as long as they were obedient. But modern societies don't work like that. People expect more, people expect, and people are more educated. Practically everyone can read. Uh, the state has many more functions. And if you don't have a sense of nationalism, then you don't support those things. You want them for your tribe, but you don't expect very much. And then the state can't count on you. And in a moment of crisis, the state doesn't get support. And at worst, it breaks down into what is almost perpetual civil war, near civil war, which is the case for Lebanon. Mm -hmm. um, so nationalism is essential and it isn't necessarily evil. Nationalism can be liberal. It can be radical left. It can be radical right. Germany under Nazism was highly nationalistic. The Soviet Union had Russian nationalism, which was a problem because a lot of Soviets weren't Russians. But Russian nationalism survives. Uh, and in fact, the country couldn't function without it. And we can't function without nationalism either. Sure. If we break down in just a group of feuding states or ethnic groups, the country falls apart. So you can't blame nationalism as such. Ethno-nationalism, well, different countries have different traditions. So the Japanese believe in ethno-nationalism. They really think that if you weren't born Japanese, you, of Japanese blood, you can't be really Japanese. Um, I remember being in Japan with uh, a colleague who spoke really excellent Japanese. And I remember being in a railway station and uh, she asked for something. And it was some um, young people. And they, they tried to answer her in English and their English was very good. <laughs> I mean, I didn't understand, but she told me what was going on. She said, I told them, no, you, you know, answer me in Japanese. Don't give me your broken English. And, and, and he said, yeah, but you're a foreigner. How come you And she said, well, because I learned Japanese and I've lived here for a long time. So that wouldn't happen in the United States. Americans are just the opposite. Americans think everyone in the world speaks English. <laughs> but uh, so uh, we shouldn't have ethnic nationalism. This country was built originally as a multi-ethnic society. Uh, yeah, it was mostly European, but even within the United Kingdom, there was a distinction between people from Scotland, people from Ireland. And then as immigrants started to come in, if they were white in Europe, from Europe, they were absorbed. And we were a multi-religious society. Some societies um, have a single religion. And if you don't have that religion, you're not really considered fully part of that. That's pretty much the case in Poland today where I think about 95% of the population is Catholic. Um, so there are these different forms of nationalism. Some are more benign than others. We originally were supposed to have a benign one. What happened that was wrong in the United States is that people who weren't white were excluded. Mm -hmm. So African-Americans, Native Americans for a long time, you know, it wasn't until after World War II that the last of the anti-Asian laws were abolished. Uh, for quite some time, or in the early 20th century, Asians weren't given the right to become citizens. Some were, some weren't. Uh, and 
that's wrong. Uh, yes. So you condemn that kind of nationalism, but you can't dismiss all of nationalism because it's essential and it can be moderate, it can be liberal, it can be far left, it can be far right, it can be ethnic, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, by the way, Japan has a big problem with that because they their population is declining and they need immigrants. And they have immigrants, but they have a hard time with them. There's a great story about Japanese ethno-nationalism. They first noticed that they were having a labor problem quite a few years ago uh, because the birth rate had fallen. Now, of course, it's much lower. It's below reproduction. And there happened to be a lot of ethnic Japanese in Brazil. There was a time when Japan was a poor country and people emigrated. Uh, much of our own Japanese American community come from descendants of those people who were mistreated, as you well know, on the West Coast during World War II. But a lot went to Brazil too. There are a lot of Japanese Brazilians. And so the Japanese government and Japanese businesses went to Brazil, to, which is a relatively poor country and was even poorer 20 or 30 years ago. Now it's kind of a middle income country to recruit workers, offering them higher salaries, Japanese workers. And I read some articles about what happened. They were absolutely stunned because these workers came from Brazil and they looked Japanese. But first of all, they didn't speak Japanese. Secondly, they were loud and hugged each other <laughs> and, <laughs> and had a different culture. They were Brazilians and the Japanese were stunned. They said, yeah, but, you know, th their blood is Japanese. Well, yeah, but, you know, they were third generation Brazilians. And so, so they didn't behave the way they were expected to. So ethnic nationalism is full of deceit in a way. Uh, but there are different cultures and you can't condemn all nationalism. So that's enough anecdotes, but that's, that's one of my favorites. Um, that's funny. Yeah. That, was, that was a great explanation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Professor, I wanna say thank you very much um, for taking the time to do this with us. Like I said, it's been a personal treat for me because I, I really do like the, the work that you've done. And the, I actually have, um, I was hoping to get one of your books before we did the podcast so I could read it. Uh, it's, um, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but uh, it's um, How About Kill Them All, I think is what it's called. Oh, yeah. Why, why, why Not Kill Them All? Why Not Kill Them All? Yeah. And so I ordered it and it's like shipping slow. And so I was supposed to get it two weeks ago and I still oh, haven't got it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for entertaining us and By the way, I should, questions. I, and... I should tell you about that book. I do have a co-author. Mm -hmm. uh, he only wrote one of the chapters, the, uh, but uh, and then I had to rewrite it because he wrote it like a professional academic uh, article, but he's very knowledgeable. He's a social psychologist. And since then he's written books that are more widely uh, readable mm -hmm. than just because, you know, professional articles are not are, uh, in professional academic journals are not easy to read. No, they're, they're not. Really just for other people in your field. But anyway, he was a tremendous help because um, I knew that I needed some social psychology. And at first I thought, well, I'll read a few books, but it turns out that's a whole very well-developed field too. And, and yeah. he, he was a tremendous help. 
uh, and um, I think his chapter is, is key. There are four main chapters there, but anyway. So, well, I hope you get it eventually. I'm excited. I'll let you know what I think of it when I get it. And uh, Okay. Um, but yeah, again, thank you very much. And thanks to anyone who's listening. I hope you guys enjoy uh, the rest of your mornings, afternoons, or evenings. And uh, that's all I got. Okay. All right. <laughs> Take care, Bye. everybody. Have a good night, everyone. Bye.